Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at 5th Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. The reading for today comes from 2 Samuel 4. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bana, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimmon the Beerothite, Rechab and Bana, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death, and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night, and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul, and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bana his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Beerothite. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. My name is Parker. It's good to welcome you here as Brandt and many other people are away at the men's retreat uh, this weekend. As you were a kid, I'm sure your parents probably told you not to go into dark corners with people you don't know. Uh, And this morning we're going to do just that. We're going to go into a dark corner of the Old Testament, and personally, I'm convinced that the Old Testament, even its darkest corners, have something for us to say. That certainly was the Apostle Paul's view on Scripture, so that's what we are going to do today. But before we do that, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to understand this strange, this weird, this disturbing story that there's somehow something that you've written long ago for us that is profitable for our rebuke, for our correction, for our training in righteousness. Would you give us great help through the power of your spirit now as we go? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this chapter closes the struggle of David and his rise to become the king over all Israel. See, back in 1 Samuel, there was a guy named Saul, and Saul was chosen to be the first king. But the problem with Saul is that he didn't believe in God wholeheartedly nor obey him wholeheartedly. And the problem with then Saul was that the Lord took his blessing off of Saul, that, that, that Saul was not the right one. And after that, David then was appointed as king over Israel, that the Lord chose another king. 
But the thing with Saul is that he was a bit of a persistent bugger. He didn't take no for an answer. He still wanted to be king, even though there was another character, David, who was king. And if you go back into that story, you'll see that David really is the true king. He's the right king. He's an expected king, but he's a king nonetheless whose heart is fully aligned with God and God's ways. That's who David was. Saul was not. And so there was this struggle, a futile struggle between Saul and David over who would be the right king over Israel. Eventually, Saul is then killed in battle, and his son Ishbosheth becomes the king in the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's where we find ourselves today with Saul's son Ishbosheth. But this guy, Ishbosheth, is not who you'd really want in a king. Ishbosheth is, um, how shall we put it, he's a bit of a weak king. He's a puppet king. See, in Ishbosheth's kingdom, he had a commander of his armies. And it really was the commander of his armies that was calling the shots. It's like, like you have a situation where somebody's supposed to be the leader, but really the person behind the scenes is the one doing all the power, the one who's calling all the shots, the one who's making all the decisions. See, this Ishbosheth guy was like a puppet king, that he was really held up and strung about by this guy who's behind the scenes, Abner, who was calling all the shots. The problem, though, with Abner is that Abner gets caught in this brotherly feud. Brothers hate brothers. They fight. They kill each other, as it happens, and Abner is killed. And what happens to a puppet when the puppeteer leaves? The puppet falls flat. And that's exactly what happens in verse 1 of chapter 4. In verse 1 of chapter 4, we see, look with me, when Ishbosheth's son Saul heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. And all Israel was dismayed. See, when the author says that his courage failed, he literally says that his hands drooped, that his hands failed, that his hands fell flat. And so we get this picture of this king in the north is now weak. His kingdom is all dismayed. And we're introduced to these characters in verse 2, these captains of raiding bands. What is their role? Do you see that there? It says that Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Banah, and the other was Rechab, sons of Rimon the Berethite, and then goes on to give some information as to who these people are. Well, since, since Rimon is their father and they're titled raiders, why don't we call them Rimonite raiders? Or my, uh, an even better one, they're from the tribe of Benjamin, why don't we call them the Benjaminite bandits? Or they're, from the, they're in the land of Canaan, so we could also call them the Canaanite cowboys. So we've got these cowboys, these raiders, these bandits come on the scene. And the thing with this word is that it's actually not a good term. We've already met some raiders before in the story, and they've proven to be these deceptive characters. These characters who are some, like, loose cannons, these wild cards. It's like you don't really know what you're going to get when you ask these guys to do a job. And by the way, they're also not the most honest. So we don't get a good feeling about this, do we? We've got this weak king in the north, his puppeteer has died, the whole kingdom is dismayed, and now we have these bandits come onto the scene. Some ominous tones here. But as we keep going, we get to verse 4 and we find something funny. It's, it's confusing if you read these first several verses, like who's who, like what is happening. Verse 4 actually doesn't help us out. See, it's possible that you could read verse 1, 2, 3, 5, skip 4, and the whole story would make sense. You very well could do that, don't you see? Talking about Ramon, these raiders, up to verse 3, and then verse 5, it picks them up. Verse 4 is really the narrator is pausing his story to whisper something in our ears. Many people over the years have looked at verse 4 and said, well, it mentions Jonathan and Jezreel and Mephibosheth and um, 
they don't show up in the story, so why don't we just take verse 4 out, and we can read the whole thing. A lot of people have done that over the years, and I don't think that's the best thing to do with the Word of God. There is something that the narrator is telling us about verse 4 that's important. We see that there's something about this character named Mephibosheth who was dropped as a kid. He's lame, but that's about it. So why don't we put that in the top drawer for now? We'll come back to it at the end. Okay, back to the bandits, verse 5. Now the sons of Rimon the Berethite, Rechab and Banath, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. I don't know about you, but I'm not getting a very good feeling about this. This puppet king has no puppeteer. He's sleeping. He's lying in the horizontal, not in the vertical, not in a place where he can defend himself. And up come these bandits, presumably going to do what bandits do best. And we get to verse 6. And we have to brace ourselves because we don't want to get tricked. They came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. We're just some hungry lads. We just want to get some wheat. We want to bake some bread. We want to bake some buns. Don't worry. We're just here. We're just here to have a good time. We're just here to get some wheat. But the reality is they didn't come to get wheat. They actually came to take a life. And that's what they do. You see that? They stabbed him, Ishbosheth, in the stomach. Then Rakah and Benah and his brother escaped. And in case we miss it, the narrator zeroes in in verse 7. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and they put him to death and they beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. So they cut off Ishbosheth's head. They, they decapitate their previous king. This is nothing than other cold-blooded betrayal, is it not? They've just killed their own king while he's lying on his own bed, this weak king in this weak kingdom. But where are they going to escape? Put it in the museum? Not yet. Verse 8. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, oh, wait, hang on, hang on. Why would they be going to David? They're not a part of David's armies. They're not a part of David's people. They've never pled allegiance to David, yet here they are bringing the head of their king, who's David's enemy, to David. Seems kind of odd. Well, let's see what they say. They say to David, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. Okay. So it's, it's making a little bit more sense now. See, they think they've done something good, don't they? They think that they have done something good for David. They're saying to David, your enemy who is seeking your life, we've sought him for you. You don't have to worry about him anymore. And David's probably sitting there a little confused and a little stunned. He's like, oh, okay. He does respond in a little bit. But as you can see, that these raiders are really fishing for something. They're looking for something. They're saying to David, we're on your side. You have no need to fear him anymore. You are welcome. Your enemy is defeated. But did you notice something else in what they say in verse 8? Not only do they say they've killed David's enemy, but they say this in the second sentence. They say, the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day, and on his offspring. When they talk about my Lord, the second one there, they're talking to David. So they're calling David Lord now at this point in the story. What they're saying is that we have killed your enemy, and it wasn't us who did it, but it really was God working through us. You see what they're saying? They, they are covering over their bloodshed in the name of God. They're saying, we've done this in the name of Lord Almighty. This personal God who you know, David, who's promised to make you king, we are not doing our business. We're doing his. So David, if you're mad at us, take it up with God. He's the one who's telling us to do this. That's what they're saying. And we might think, well, 
David is a righteous king. He's struggling against the house of Saul. So surely, surely David would take this, right? Surely he would accept this. David knows that the Lord is going to provide for his rise to the throne. David, of course, should accept this. But that's not what we see. Smells a little bit like fishy. Smells a little fishy, a little little bit like smoke and mirrors. Almost too good to be true. And David sees right through their lies and what they're saying. Verse 9, But David answered Rechab and Benah, look with me. David answered them, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite. And he doesn't first mention himself. David doesn't first mention them. He doesn't first mention Saul or Ishbosheth. David doesn't even mention that Mephibosheth guy from back in verse 4. Remember about him. David does not mention anybody, but who does he mention first in his response? Look, David's first person on his mind as he responds to these killers is the Lord. He says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. See, what David is saying here is that the thing that is most relevant to him at all steps in his life, good or bad, all the twists and the turn, is that the Lord is his living redeemer. David has at times been threatened by a giant who's threatened the whole kingdom of Israel. He's been threatened by people who don't think he's the rightful king. He's been threatened by Saul. He's been, David has been running from his life. And this whole time, David has known the Lord as his living redeemer. David knows that it's the God who is in control and will bring about his good promises. David has trusted in that. He knows that God's plan trumps all other plans. And David is not going to stop now. And so David actually has a little story time. I mean, I picture this like David, like a little mob boss. He's sitting there and he says, all right, guys, let me tell you a little story. Okay. You're not the first ones who put me in this situation. Uh, back several years ago, there's a guy named Saul. You guys remember him? And they're probably like, yeah, of course we remember him. We were on his side, but now we're on your side. Okay, well, David says, there was a time when he was killed in battle and somebody came to tell me that they killed David in battle. And he thought he was bringing me good news. But you want to know the good news that I gave him for his good news? His own death. I grabbed this guy. I seized him and I killed him because he was the one who took God's plan into his hands. David's saying, guys, I've been in this situation before. I've had it where people are trying to advance God's plan instead of God himself. And these guys are probably thinking they're seeing the parallels. They're probably silent. They're like, oh, oh this, this kind of backfired. I mean, we're holding the head of this king. It's dripping blood. And David just told us that he killed somebody who did this before. What does David say? He says in verse 11, How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? David commanded his young men. They killed them, cut off their hands and feet, hanged them with the pool of Hebron. They buried the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. And they all lived happily ever after the end. No, they didn't live happily ever after. These raiders thought they were doing something good. They even said they were doing it in the Lord's name, and yet David was the one who rejected them. See, they thought they were doing a righteous thing, but David sees right through it and says, no, what you are doing actually is truly wicked. Oh, how the tables have turned, and they pay the steepest price for their injustice. And as we can see in this whole story that these cowboys are mischievous and up to no good. 
Remember the context in which they were introduced? This weak king, this weak kingdom. They are on the losing end. They could tell that the side that they are on, the team that they're playing on, is going to lose. They are discouraged. Their king is discouraged. They realize this is not going to go out well for us. And what do any quick-thinking cowboys do? They figure out something to save their own skin. See, these cowboys are really just after their own self-preservation. All that they want is they want to be on the winning side. They don't care about Ishbosheth. They don't care about David. All they care about is themselves. All they care about is that they can be provided for, and maybe even they'll get a good place into David's kingdom. They're expecting David to welcome them and shower them with praises and say, oh, thank you, you've killed my enemy. Now you can come and have a great entrance into my kingdom. And that's actually not what happens. They have deception in their mind and a fake allegiance on their sleeve. Their actions say, we think we're with David, but the motives internally for them say, really, I'm with me. And this brings us to the second issue with them. In being aligned with their own goals, they are also willing to use methods that are wicked and cruel. As I've said elsewhere uh, about current events, war is a terrible thing, but there are rules for war. And even in this case, there clearly are rules for war. That David sees that this is a cold-blooded killing. The guy was lying on his bed for crying out loud, taking a nap. That's not the time that you kill somebody. And David is calling this for what it is. He's calling this a cold-blooded killing. He's saying that this is injustice because it suits their own end. See, in the world, if the means justify the end, then all is well. Right? This story exposes the lie and tells us, on brightest terms, how ugly such attitudes are in God's kingdom. This story helps us to see the problem of living for our own goals. Let me ask you this this morning. Whose goals is your life aligned with today? Whose goals is your life aligned with? And I mean your whole life, not just the things you do with your hands, like your work and how you make your money and the way that you treat other people, but, but I mean like really deep down, internally, your motivations that drive you to act, whose are they aligned with today? Friends, Christianity is about receiving the transformative grace of God in the person of Christ and being changed by that so that we can live wholeheartedly into allegiance to God, fully devoted to him. But because you and I are human, it's easy for us to claim allegiance outwardly, yet live with hearts that are not fully transformed. It's easy to live with lives that are still aligned with our own goals. And, and that's really what the path of discipleship is all about. That we accept Jesus, we accept what he's done for us, but as we go about following Christ in our lifetime, it's about the internal renewal of our hearts to him. But this story helps us see the problem with leaving those motivations and leaving those attitudes unchecked. Maybe, maybe let me give you an example. Maybe, maybe you've had a situation in life that has left you, for whatever reason, feeling very insecure about yourself. Um, maybe, for whatever reason, the way that you dress, the way that you act, you, you feel this inner stress in social situations or at work or, or wherever of how people perceive you. You, you, you feel that, 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 that you need the positive attention of other people. And that attitude might lead you to, in the church, to act in such a way that always tries to cast yourself in the best possible light. It maybe leads you to, to, to uh, only talk with certain people or talk with people in a certain way on a Sunday gathering. 
Maybe it even leads you to frame your prayer requests at your CG all in a way that makes you look good. Or the way that you pray, the way that you read the Bible, anything. Maybe you are feeling that you have to have the love and approval from other people. On the surface, it might seem like you're living and loving, living other. On the surface, it might seem like you're living others and loving them. But on the inside, your motives are still mixed. Now, maybe that's true for you. Maybe it's true for some of us, but maybe for you, your internal motives are not based on insecurity, but they're still based on something else. That they're still based on something that is about your own agenda and your own plan for your life. See, if that is you, then this story is helpful because this story helps us see the problem of living for our own goals. Looking, looking at this story and seeing how brutal and how horrible it is helps us to examine our lives. It forces us to put our inner recesses of our soul under the microscope, to put our motivations on the stand, to, to question why it is that we are acting in certain ways when we go to act. This story is helping us to probe the why behind all of our motives. It helps us see that in the kingdom of God, there's no room for duplicative motives, whether it's out of insecurity or other type of selfish gain. Now, I don't know all of you. I know some of you. I don't know all of you. But there are people in your life who probably know you better than me, right? You've got your acquaintances, and then you've got your group of friends. But even then, if you're honest, you will say that there are people within that group of friends who know you a little bit better, right? And then even within that group of your close friends, there probably is a select few people who know you even better. Maybe you're married, maybe you have a best friend, and, and, and you, they, you have shared everything in your life with them. Think of that person. But maybe, probably, this is true, that even with that person who's closest with you, there are things in your life that you haven't ever told them. That there are things in your mind and things in your heart that go on and on that, that, that they have never seen. For better, for worse, that there are these things inside of you that persist that nobody else sees. And what this story is doing is helping us to address those things. This story is a call for us to repent of those things, those things deep down inside of us that drive us to act in certain ways. It's helping us to see that there is a problem when we align with our own goals. It's a problem when we align with our own motives. It's a problem when we let these small things continue to fester along the path of discipleship because sooner or later we're going to be found out. They're going to be exposed. We serve a Lord who sees those things deep down inside of us, who tests the heart and know everything that's going on right now. And if any of that relates to you, which I'm sure it does, there is good news. There is good news because the hope of the gospel is that we are able to find the deepest security and the best flourishing that we possibly could ever have in Christ that in Jesus, there is something better than what your motives are searching after. If you're uh, keeping with this insecurity example, if you're searching for the insecurity, what you're searching for in other people, you already have in the person of Jesus. You already have in the riches of his eternal love poured out on you. Whatever it is that you're searching for, the love of Christ is true for us. See, the heart of Jesus, for those of us whose hearts go astray, it's all of us, is one of deep compassion and sympathy. That we come to a risen Savior who's able to deal gently with our sin, even this sin that's really deep down, 
Even this sin that is persistent, even this sin that might have contaminated our whole life, as long as we regularly come in humble repentance before him, that he is gracious towards us to correct these things in our hearts. And while these bandits in the story help us to see the ugliness of our hearts that aren't perfectly aligned, the gospel of Christ provides us all that we need to maybe today, maybe today is the day of salvation for you, for you to start aligning your heart with Christ. Or for many of us, it's a day for us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling to realign. Maybe for the first time, start aligning some of our inner motives with that of God's kingdom. It starts with examining ourselves every day, multiple times throughout the day, to ask ourselves, whose goals am I really living for? But if that is true, then what does it actually look like to have a heart that's aligned with Christ? And this story still helps us because we have a positive example of David. See, as I've said repeatedly, in this larger story, David has been presented with times to take the kingdom on his own. I mean, there was a time when he was hidden in a cave. Saul didn't know he was there. David reaches out to cut his robe, and he could have cut off his head, but he didn't. Because David knows if God really is going to make me king, God's going to make it happen in my timing. That David never, ever, ever takes a hand out to grab what he wants, what God has promised him. That is God who's going to provide it for him. And here, more than ever, don't you think that David has incentive to take what's been given to him? I mean, think about it. David didn't hatch this plan. He didn't resource this plan. He didn't commission it. He didn't even risk his own life for this plan. And lo and behold, the head of his enemy shows up at his doorstep. Unannounced. He didn't ask for it, like the package that you didn't arrive, that you didn't ask for, you didn't order. It just shows up. And more than that, the people who are responsible cloak this all in the name of God. They say, the Lord is behind all of this. I mean, if you were David, if I was David, what would we do? We probably would take it, right? I mean, this is too good to be true. The head of our enemy showing up and people saying God was behind this, of course we're going to take it. Nobody's going to know, right? Nobody's going to know. But that's just it. David knows that God will know. See, if David's heart had any inkling of desire for his own power, this is the time that it would have latched out. This is the time that his motivations would have driven him to act and take it on his own. This is the time that David would have endorsed injustice in his rise to the throne. But David doesn't. He doesn't. David's heart is fully and entirely committed to the Lord. He knows that God will know. He knows that injustice is against the Lord ways. Now, to be sure, let's be thoughtful about this. David is not always a positive character in the Bible. Just last week, I was teaching in the kids, and we uh, taught the story a few chapters from now um, about David and Bathsheba. Don't worry, we kept it PG. Don't worry about that. But we did teach them. We did teach them that David does sin egregiously, and he does shortly after this. So why... We have to think, why are we going to read David positively in this story now? Well, let's open that top drawer. Remember verse 4? Remember that I mentioned about Mephibosheth? Here's how, here's why. Okay? See, way back in, in 1 Samuel, David was friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. They were, they were deep friends. They were really close friends, formed a, a covenant together. And David promised Jonathan, he says, I love you so much that I am going to provide for and care for your son no matter what. That's who's mentioned in verse 4. Okay, this Mephibosheth character, Jonathan's son. 
If we read all of 2 Samuel, we'll get to the end, and we will find that the narrator mentions Mephibosheth again, that in fact, David does hold up his end of the bargain, that David does provide for and care for Mephibosheth. The story of Mephibosheth, the theme of Mephibosheth, is all about David's faithfulness to his promises. And what the author is doing here is he's shining that theme as a spotlight into the story to say, remember this David character in his relation to Mephibosheth, that David is a faithful person. He's faithful to what is true. He's made a promise, and he does end up fulfilling that promise. That's how biblical narrative works. It's these things over a long period of time are mentioned. And so the point being is that David not only is faithful to his word and keeps it true, but we also see in this story that David is faithful to the Lord's word, that the Lord's goals are his goals, the Lord's ways are his ways, the Lord's agenda is his agenda through and through, no matter what, inside and out, day in, day out. David, at least here in this story, is committed entirely to the Lord and his kingdom. David helps us see that it's necessary for us to adopt God's ways as our own. We see that David's heart is pure and thoroughly honest before the Lord. See, the problem with living a Christian life without questioning or scrutinizing our inner motivations is precisely because out of our heart, we act and speak. That's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. He said, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, just like a small rudder steers a whole ship, Jesus knows that what happens inside of our own hearts, inside of our own minds, leads us to act. And maybe today we've been able to live with this internal motivation that has not led us to make a shipwreck of our faith. Maybe that's happened, but let me tell you today, don't bank on that. Don't bank on letting these small motivations that are aimed at your own agenda and your own goals continue to live in your own heart. Jesus calls his followers to wholehearted, whole self, whole person devotion to him, including these motivations. Now, as we finish, let me, let me give two, two nuances to this. Because you, as you're thinking about how this applies to your life, uh, this internal and external relation, let, let me say this. This story is not a call for us to only act if our hearts are perfect and pure. Let me say that again. This story is not a call for us to only act if our hearts are perfect and pure. That seems to undercut everything I've said so far. Here's what I mean. If we sit around and wait for our hearts to be 100% perfect, no hint of sin, no trace of sin, absolutely pure before the Lord, uh, we're waiting for our salvation to be complete. And we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that we are to grow in Christ-likeness. If we're waiting for Christ-likeness to be perfected in us before we do anything, then nothing's ever going to get done. Plain and simple, that the kingdom of God still, is at, it still needs to be built. But see, the thing is, is that sometimes an external commitment actually can be a way for us to reorient our lives. That an external commitment can be a means of grace. I mean, again, I'll take the example of the kids, the people who are volunteering this morning. I, I, don't, I don't know, but, but maybe this morning they woke up full of joy and gratitude for the Lord and they want to serve the children. I'll speak for myself that there are times that I've taught in the kids and I kind of like, eh, I don't really want to do this today. Don't, don't kill me. Uh, but, but that's the truth. That's just the reality. There are some days where I kind of think, you know what, I, 
I don't, I don't really want to do this or whatever it is for you. See, I can honestly say that it's in those moments in acting that my heart has been transformed. That sometimes acting externally can be a means of grace for us to to uh, have and see this internal change to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So there's there's one nuance we have to keep in mind here, and I can say that because of the second thing and this last thing. It's been staring us in the face the whole time. I don't know if you've noticed. This injustice of killing this king is exactly the means that God uses to bring David to the king, to bring David to the throne. Like, this is it. Like, this chapter is the end of the feud between Saul and David's house. David is anointed right after this as king. He establishes his kingdom in Israel, uh, in Jerusalem, brings the ark in, and away he goes you know, makes a tragedy and, and, and et cetera, he goes. But this is the very thing that God uses to bring about his promise to have David on the throne. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, who's right and who's wrong in the story? See, the point is, is that though there is sin and injustice in the story, our God is at work redeeming that evil for his good. I think about the end of the book of Genesis when Joseph and his son, or Joseph's brothers, come to him to apologize. And Joseph says, what does he say? He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. See, friends, the reality is, is that we serve a God who is able to take everything that we do, whether right or wrong, whether honestly done before him or done in sin, and to redeem it for his good purposes. And so this does not need to leave us in despair. I'll tell you, honestly, a window into my own life this past week as I'm studying this passage, I, there was a moment where I just had to take my glasses off and, and put my hand over my face. I just realized, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. Like, there is so much sin, so many things I've done in your name, and my heart has been wayward. And that led me to realize, oh, there's actually a lot more than that. And I found myself face on my desk and then it kept happening, and I found myself on my knees and so forth. I'm just sprawling on the ground as I just kept realizing time and again all the things that I have done while my heart has really been about my own means. I've acted for God, but really internally I was acting for myself. And I laid there and I thought, Lord, like I, I just am a complete mess. I'm a complete wreck. Everything I've done has been contaminated by my sin. And while that is true, there was grace in Christ for me, for my wayward motivations, but there also is the redeeming work of God that I can trust somehow in some way that the things that I have done and committed to building up God's kingdom, God is still using despite my sin. That let that not be a license for us to allow these motivations to be wayward, but that encourages us to come in repentance to God for his grace, repenting of our sin, the deepest motivations inside of us, that we would live as wholehearted, committed people to Jesus and his ways day in and day out. It means that we repent regularly on a daily basis. And it's to that place of humble confession that I want to invite us all now. We're going to move into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper, so I'll invite the, the band to come up. Now, uh, for all of you who know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, uh, the Lord's Supper is a time where we take the bread and the wine, where we feast on these elements, represented by Jesus' blood and uh, body and blood. It's for those who've entered the kingdom of heaven and those who hold true that God's kingdom requires our allegiance. So this morning, if you realize that there are internal motivations inside of you, let that not be a reason to prevent you from coming to the Lord's Supper, but let that be a reason for you to come. Yeah, the worship band, you guys can come on up. 
If that's not you, though, if 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 the if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, if that's not something that you proclaim to be true about you, we will just ask that you hold back, that you don't come up and and, and partake of the Lord's Supper, because that would be saying something true about yourself that uh, isn't true, and we wouldn't want that for you. Uh, on a practical note, there will be servers at the front of each row here uh, who will be giving you the bread and the juice. You can take them back to your seats uh, and we'll participate together after the first song. There's also gluten-free bread up at the front for those who need it. Now let me pray as we finish and head into the celebrating communion together. Almighty God, into whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love thee, that we would worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.